Welcome to LSE IQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science. This is the podcast where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. For nearly 50 years, governments around the world, led by the US, have been fighting a war on drugs. The aim? To reduce the production, supply and use of certain drugs and ultimately create a drug-free society. But having cost the US more than $1 trillion to date and taken hundreds of thousands of lives, it's a war with high collateral damage. In this episode, Jess Winterstein asks why, after nearly 50 years of global conflict, haven't we won the war on drugs? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. On 17th of June 1971, American President Richard Nixon declared what has become known as the War on Drugs, committing the country to pursuing a policy of prohibition against the sale and use of all illicit substances. On signing the policy into law, the President said, I am convinced that the only way to fight this menace is by attacking it on many fronts. It's a battle cry that has been taken up and renewed over the years by governments and international organisations around the world. The United Nations, pledging at a General Assembly special session in 1988, for example, that the world would be drug-free by 2008. Nearly a decade past the UN's deadline, however, drugs are still very much in evidence. An illegal market has flourished, estimated to turn over around $320 billion a year, while research published in the British Medical Journal in 2013 found that the price of illegal drugs had decreased while their purity had increased in the past 20 years. With so many countries committed to fighting drugs, why are illegal drugs still so ubiquitous? John Collins is Executive Director of the LSE Ideas International Drug Policy Project and coordinator of the Expert Group on the Economics of Drug Policy, which has released two reports that have been critical of current drug policy. He thinks the concept was flawed from the start. Well, I think the reason we haven't won the war on drugs is because fundamentally you cannot win a war on drugs. You cannot win a war against an inert substance. It fundamentally becomes a war on drug users and people involved in, in the trade, which, which very often are, are some of the most marginalized groups in society. When you're faced with a choice of do nothing or do something which is actively harmful and is totally ineffective, the international community has usually chosen the latter one. That's the war on drugs. That's going in and spraying crops when it's costly and effective and causes cancer to the communities that you're doing it to. Um, but when there's no alternative being posited, well, then that's why that becomes a default response. But surely the aim of at least trying to eradicate harmful drugs is a worthy one. I asked John if it could be that it's just not being pursued hard enough. Yeah, I, I think for most of the last century, the idea was there is one direction to go. It is through more prohibitions, more controls, more repression. And eventually, if every state lives up to its obligations and invests enough resources in that, um, we will eventually overcome this issue. That was shown to be false, you know, by something as simple as the balloon effect, where suppressing successfully in one area means that it pops up in another area. You know, you suppress in the Caribbean, it pops up in Mexico. You suppress in Mexico, it pops up in Guatemala. 
Um, and we have lots of evidence around that, that balloon effect over the decades. The ideas underpinning pursuing drug policy via war on drugs were fundamentally flawed to begin with. Um, when those policies were not shown as working, our response has been to double down and triple down and try harder in the same direction, when actually we should have been reversing course and trying a different direction. Michael Shiner, Associate Professor in the Department of Social Policy and Head of Teaching at the International Drug Policy Project at LSE, agrees that the idea we can simply police drug use into inexistence is troublesome. If you, if you simply look at the practicalities of how law is generally enforced and how offenders are generally brought to justice, then um, we're heavily reliant on information provided by witnesses and victims. Uh, and that doesn't really happen with most drug offences because drug offences, certainly drug consumption offences or possession offences are in a, in a kind of category of crime that we would call consensual crime. So this is really where the person that, that you might think of as the victim is, is also actually actively engaged in, in the offence, in the commission of the offence itself. So what that means is there's no one really with an interest in providing information to the police, going to court. Um, and, and, and really um, providing that kind of information that could lead to conviction of people. So actually, the police have a really difficult job in enforcing drug laws. Drug laws are, to some degree, unenforceable. Criminal law is a pretty blunt instrument. It really depends on uh, cooperation from individuals, communities, victims. And that's really problematic in the context of, of crimes which rest on the consent of those that are involved, largely. It's an unwinnable war, really. And yet there still seems to be this unswerving commitment from governments that criminalising drug use is the way to solve the drugs problem. Just last year, for example, following reports of a rise in deaths from people using legal highs, then-UK Home Secretary Theresa May introduced legislation making it illegal to supply any legal highs for human consumption. While the aims of the Psychoactive Substances Act are commendable, the legislation was criticised as unworkable and a warning issued by the Advisory Council for the Misuse of Drugs that it risked criminalising otherwise law-abiding young people. I asked Michael why, if half a century of prohibition hasn't solved the drugs problem, this commitment to the war on drugs still persists. If the policy isn't achieving its stated aim, perhaps its stated aim isn't its real purpose. Perhaps there are other reasons why we've invested in this approach and I think that drug law enforcement is is helpful to a number of people in a number of different ways. So one of the things that I that I think if you look at the way in which drug laws are enforced, they're, they're enforced differentially in many societies against vulnerable communities. And so I think one of one of the conclusions that we might come to is actually the, the drug laws offer states and, and police a way of disciplining populations which have been deemed to be problematic in some way or perhaps even surplus to requirements. So if we, if we look in um, situations of reasonably high unemployment where perhaps the same degree of labour isn't any longer required, one of the arguments is that, that particularly in the States that drug laws have absorbed that surplus labour by putting an awful lot of people in prison. Really the state has increasingly justified it in term, itself in terms of providing security for people. Uh, and in order to really provide security, you need a sense of threat. And, and I think in recent years, the, the, the threat discourse has really coalesced around two things. It's coalesced around terrorism and it's coalesced around drugs. So that drugs have been framed very much in terms of this threat discourse. And I really think that's, that's in a way which is actually disproportionate to the, to the harmfulness of the substances. 
uh, themselves as distinct from the harmfulness of the policy that we have around them. But I think that that, that idea of, of drugs as posing an existential threat, as being the basis of organised crime, of destabilising societies, has really provided a way in which the state has justified um, not only its, its, its continued existence, but an, but an increasingly interventionist um, role in, in people's lives. Danny Kushlik is founder and head of external affairs of the Transform Drug Policy Foundation, a charitable think tank that campaigns for the legal regulation of drugs both in the UK and internationally. I spoke to him via Skype to find out why the foundation supported such a radical change in policy. He agrees that there is more going on behind the laws and rhetoric than simply the desire to stop people taking harmful substances. Well, the first thing is that the, the, the war on drugs is actually a misnomer. It's, it's, it's very clearly a war on people um, and was set up uh, primarily, uh, in, in our view, as, a, as an act of xenophobia. Um, it was a war against people who were using the wrong drugs, basically. And in terms of winning it, it was never set up to be won in the first place. The idea was that, that this was a group of people who could be uh, identified as the other and as a threat. Um, and the war was, was, was for in order to fight. So it's, it's really a political stance. The idea that drugs are hurtful for people and therefore they have to be criminalised, is, is that, that's completely not the way to look at it? Well, you can see very clearly the drugs that were included in our contemporary drug war, which, which is, is, is codified in the 1961 Single Convention on Drugs, uh, put in place at, at, at the UN, that the drugs are, that are exempted uh, from that, uh, tobacco and alcohol, or nicotine and alcohol, and and these were clearly the drugs that were already a significant public health problem then, and have become much worse. But but they were never included and are continually exempted from from global prohibitions on the basis that those are our drugs; those aren't the drugs of the other. Um, so it, 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 in terms of, of dealing with with a with what was uh, ostensibly uh, a health issue. Um, the question was why Why were nicotine and, and alcohol left out? And the answer was it was never an attempt to deal with a health problem. Your argument obviously with the transform is that drug prohibition just will never work. Um, is, is it not a case that maybe they should just add alcohol and nicotine and, and get harder on their approach? Or it, I mean why, why do you think that we really do need to have a completely different shift in how we view drugs? We have a society where people use drugs for, for fun uh, and for curiosity to change their state of consciousness um, and where people um, problematically use drugs in order to deal with um, personal and societal distress. The, the, the idea of criminalising um, uh, pleasure-seeking and criminalising distress is, is anathema to anyone who, who has an interest in effective, humane and just policymaking. So we have a huge number of citizens who admit to taking drugs for either recreational or addiction purposes and laws that target only specific drugs, which it could be argued are unfairly skewed against certain groups of the population. I asked John Collins if perhaps one of the problems facing policymakers was that the idea of decriminalising drugs is still considered unacceptable to many voters. The, the issue has started to change, but a few years ago, yes, this was political kryptonite. It was toxic 
to talk of anything other than a hardline approach to drugs because drug users were the, the lowest of society. Drug dealers are the lowest, lowest of society. And so there's no, there's no political upside to talking about um, applying human rights or public health or, or, or just a, a policy management perspective to that issue. It's that this must be expunged from society. It must be destroyed. We must go to war with the, these people. And so there was just no political incentive, I think, to look at it in a new way. Danny Kushlik agrees that there is a huge political risk to changing discourse on drugs after so long, but argues that it is essential nonetheless. Drug policy, if you only really apply prohibition, becomes a weapon to attack your own citizens with, um, or, or other citizens from other, other states. And it's very difficult to turn around, uh, both psychologically and politically, and say, well, that's worked catastrophically, mainly for the people who've been voting for us for the last 50 years. Um, and we need to turn on a sixpence and actually operate something completely different. And something that we, we uh, as, 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 as drug warriors, have uh, portrayed as being soft on drugs and not providing the protection, particularly to young people, that, that we have been duping the public into believing with regard to prohibition. It's very hard to turn around and say, no, we're going to do something different. And does the general public have to play a, a bigger part? Because I get the impression as well that uh, certainly for the UK politicians, it's seen as you know a vote loser to suggest anything other than being hard on drugs. It's, it's an interesting one. In Uruguay, uh, President Mujica uh, moved forward on the issue in the absence of significant public support for cannabis uh, regulation. Um, and despite a significant effort to increase levels of support amongst the pop uh, population, um, it never got above 40% support. So the moves that, that, that have been made in Uruguay have been done in, in, in spite of the fact that, that, that there is limited voter support, um, which is absolutely commendable because it, it demonstrates the leadership that, that, that can be taken here. Where, where, where Roy Jenkins did that in, in the, the uh, late 60s, uh, when as Home Secretary in the UK, he moved on uh, abortion, death penalty, and the legalization of homosexuality, when presumably there wasn't that much support for them. And it, it, it demonstrates political leadership. The narrative that, that politicians have in the UK about it being a vote loser probably aren't true. It's more a thing of, of, of the fact that, that they've spent so many decades beating each other up, weaponizing the policy and using it to attack political opponents particularly at elections, that, that it's more to do with that than it is to do with, with, with voter support. So if prohibition has failed, what would be the best way? Well, there, there, there aren't that many options here. Um, if you don't use prohibition, you have to use some form of, of, of regulation. Um, and that means transferring uh, production and supply from uh, organised criminals, unregulated dealers, um, and entrepreneurs who don't want to pay tax and who are happy to use violence to to uh, uh, stamp their 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 will on their their turf, um, we 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 have to transfer it into the hands of uh, pharmacists, of doctors, and licensed retailers. 
Um, and that is, is self-evidently a better way of, of providing opportunities to put in place price control, purity guides, safer use warnings, um, and all the kind of things that you would want to have in order to protect ordinary citizens. Because the prohibition is effectively there to, to protect, I mean, uh, in, intentionally or not, the interests of uh, organized crime. And, and, and the, the uh, free market approach, which basically gifts uh, the drug trade to, to big pharma, uh, big alcohol and big tobacco, just protects corporates. So what, what we're after is, is strict government regulation. And you can pretty much work it out for yourself. There are drugs that you can, you'll be going to be able to buy from a pharmacist, some that you're only going to be able to get on prescription and some that you can get from a licensed vendor. John Collins agrees that taking a new policy approach wouldn't mean that drugs like heroin or crack cocaine would be suddenly available for all. Regulation inevitably involves prohibitions. Do this, don't do this. This is technically allowed, this is technically not allowed. Um, alcohol is available in the UK, but certain types of consumption are prohibited. Consumption under a certain legal age, selling at certain times, consuming in certain venues and places. So there will always be an element of, quote, prohibition. The question is where you draw that line. Um, and so I don't envision that, that an optimal regulatory framework for something like heroin would be free access. There will be certain types of prohibitions on who gets to supply it and how it's supplied and, 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 and who can consume where. The question is where we draw that line. And that's where this becomes a more complex issue. Where you've got an established heroin consuming population, let's say, um, prohibition has minimal effects on groups that are already consuming the drugs because they're going to find some way to get them when there's a demand there'll be a supply. So moving away from, quote, prohibition in that context may be more a case of who's the supplier? Is it going to be the government or is it going to be the black market? So that's why I think um, prohibition will always have a role in this. It's just a question of how you define prohibition. And, and, and it's more of a kind of where you draw the limits rather than this kind of idea of a blanket, we will stop all consumption and all supply in all places. Now, the issue we're facing now is that the narrative has changed. The discourse has changed pretty significantly. But the problem is we've had no policy experimentation in this area for decades. We don't know exactly what alternatives look like because very few states have tried alternatives. We have some, we have some models that we can move towards, such as public health models tried in places like Switzerland and you know, Germany and, and places like that. Um, but it's going to be an incremental process of trial and error. And we see that in the case of marijuana legalization, where we're just starting to see what happens when you shift from a, a fully illegal market to a regulated market in parts of the US and Uruguay and other places. Michael Shiner also believes that change will need to come from a more local level. I think there are on the international stage, on the global stage, there still are very powerful advocates of prohibition. Um, I, really, I really don't see that the, the, the change is going to come from above. I think this, this is really a situation where you're going to get um, progressive developments occurring at a, at a local level and, and hopefully filtering their way up. I, I think we've, if we're waiting for global leadership to bring an end to the world, to the drug, to the, to the war on drugs, I think we will be waiting an awful long time. That, that said, I mean, there is a fragmentation. So certainly um, various former um, presidents of, of um, states in Central and Southern America have 
have made it very clear that they think we need we need a shift in global policy, that we need to move away from prohibition, that it's actually wrought huge harm on their countries and other countries, producer countries, trafficker countries. Um, so certainly there's a shift, but I but I really don't see um, leadership on this issue, this issue coming from established politicians because because I think the the difficulty that, that established politicians have is not only are there not really any votes to win in relation to drug reform, there's actually quite a lot of votes to lose. So politicians are in a bind over this. If changes are to come from those working on the ground, the police would seem a logical place to start. In the LSE expert group on the economics of drug policy report after the drug wars, Michael points to a central paradox of drug policing, that what is politically acceptable cannot be achieved, but what is achievable is not politically acceptable. He warns that inappropriate policing increases market violence, harms health and damages police legitimacy, and suggests that a better way to tackle the underlying problems that drugs cause would be to reorient the police to focus more on harm reduction. I asked Michael what he meant by that. I think you can say that, that illegal drugs are a source of harm, but, but certainly I would argue that a very large proportion of that harm is actually due to the way in which we manage or mismanage the problem. So, so a huge amount of the harm comes from criminalisation rather than the drugs themselves. So the, so the idea of, of harm reduction, simply put, is, is that you, you don't focus on seeking to eliminate drug use, that what you focus on is trying to reduce the attendant harms that come along with drug use. And really, I think the overwhelming evidence is that once you have established drug markets, there's very little you can do to eliminate them, particularly, certainly in terms of enforcement, that, that really um, eliminating drug markets through enforcement, there really is very little, if any, evidence to support that as a viable strategy. Um, that said, that doesn't mean that the police are unable to affect drug markets, that we know actually they can. And what the police can do is that they can shape the market in important ways, so they can push it in certain um, directions. So the idea is that we shift the thinking away from uh, police action being focused on this il this elusive and illusory aim of trying to eliminate the drug market, which is which is really an impossibility, and focus on reducing the harms that come along with it. What that might mean, for example, so one of one of the things that's that's been documented is is if the if the police have a particular crackdown on a on a drug market, and let's say, for example that they use carrying in syringes as evidence of, a, of an offence in relation to drug use and that, they, that they're going to arrest people on the basis that they're carrying syringes. That has a number of damaging consequences because what that means is that people are going to stop carrying syringes in order to avoid detection. If they stop carrying syringes, they're much more likely to share um, injecting equipment which comes with all sorts of increased risks around HIV and other blood-borne infections. So the idea here is that, that actually, from a harm reduction perspective, that what we'd be looking at is, is, is the police being much more careful in terms of how they're interacting with drug users. International drug policy has been coming under scrutiny. In April 2016, the United Nations held a special session on drugs, or UNGAS, the first UN summit on drug law in 18 years. I asked John Collins how significant the event was. Was it, as some suggested beforehand, the beginning of the end of the war on drugs? If we had have been faced with this scenario that we faced today six years ago, we would have thought that was impossible. There was no way in hell that the United States would be saying publicly that member states can uh, 
can technically legalize certain types of drugs, that there is flexibilities in the treaties, um, that UN agencies would be this openly critical of death penalty issues and, and, and advocating for public health issues. Now, that does not mean that we do not have monumental lengths that we still need to go. But I think the, the, the trajectory has shifted onto a, better, uh, onto a better footing. And so I think there is cause to be optimistic, but it's going to be a long, long fight. It's going to be a fight at the local, national, regional, international levels over the next 40, 50, 60 years. Danny Kushlik is also positive when asked about the future of drugs policy. I think between 2020 and 2025, uh, there will be even more substantial changes towards a reform position um, where more and more countries will move from prohibitionist positions to uh, state regulation. I think that when Canada goes in terms of cannabis um, uh, in 2018, uh, it's a G7 country. Uh, the, the messaging of Trudeau has been exquisite in terms of declaring that the reason why they're moving to that position is to protect young people and to undermine organized crime. It makes it difficult, very difficult for drug warriors to sustain a narrative which suggests that prohibition does exactly the same thing because it's clear that one does and one doesn't. Um, that the that, 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 that prohibition does not protect young people and gifts the trade to organised crime, whereas regulation puts in place uh, protective measures, um, for instance, age controls in terms of sales to protect young people and actively takes the trade away from organised crime. We're looking at the end um, and, and hopefully this is something that we won't have to talk about in, in 10 or 15 years time and we can get on and deal with some more substantive issues like, like patriarchy and global warming. Our experts agree that the war on drugs is one fight that can never be won. Perhaps when it comes to drugs, we need to stop thinking in terms of winning and losing and instead embrace the idea that an end to prohibition doesn't have to mean that the battle against drugs has been lost. What do you think? Tell us using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Jess Winterstein, Tom Williams and James Rattie. It was based in part on the following research. Ending the Drug Wars, a report of the LSE Expert Group on the Economics of Drugs Policy, published by LSE Ideas and edited by John Collins. After the Drug Wars, a report of the LSE Expert Group on the Economics of Drug Policy, published by LSE Ideas, edited by John Collins and with contributions by Michael Shiner. Drug Policy Reform and the Reclassification of Cannabis in England and Wales, a cautionary tale by Michael Shiner. And Ending the War on Drugs, how to Win the Global Drug Policy Debate. Written and edited by Steve Rolls, Lisa Sanchez, Martin Powell, Danny Kushlik, and George Merkin, and published by Transform. For more episodes of this podcast and all associated links, and to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, please visit lsc.ac.uk forward slash IQ. See you next time when we ask, what's the secret to happiness?